Hello and welcome to episode 571 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I am very excited about our upcoming Focus on Seminar with the wonderful Pamela Freeman, who has published well over 40 books. So, you know, she knows the thing or two about writing. Uh, If you're not familiar with our Focus on series, these are one and a half hour seminars, which you can join live over Zoom. And they're very specific about focusing on specific aspects of the craft of writing. So this week on Thursday, 26th October, 2023, it is Focus on Subplots and it's at 7pm Sydney, Melbourne time. And you can find out more at writercentre.com.au slash subplots. Now, subplots are so important because you know that almost all novels need subplots. But you also know that they shouldn't take over the main plot, the main story, right? A good subplot actually adds value and buoys the main narrative and shows different aspects of maybe the theme or or it helps round out characters and helps us learn more about certain characters um, so that we can see that they have different sides to them. The perfect subplots are so entwined with the main story, if it's, if it's a novel that's written well, a story that's written well, that they can't really be pulled out without everything falling apart, right? And by interweaving them, the plot and the subplots, they, they create a higher narrative tension, which means that readers are far more engaged and they really buy into the story and want to find out more about the characters' lives and so on. But you need to make some decisions on how to do this. How in the world do you insert it into the narrative? Which characters should have the subplots? Should it be all of them? Yeah, well, come and find out. How much of the narrative should they take up, you know, so that it's the right balance between the main plot and the subplot and other subplots? Do they need to have um, a climax themselves, all right? not just the main story, but what happens with the subplot? So this online seminar is going to be conducted over Zoom, and it's everything you need to know about subplots. I know it's going to be really popular, and it's a great opportunity to ask your questions as well, because the first hour is Pamela discussing everything you need to know about subplots, and then the last 30 minutes is your chance for Q&A to get your questions answered. So um, if you want to find out more, go to writerscentercomau slash subplots, and and book in. Now, are you ready for Nat Newman, one of our fantastic creative writing tutors here at the Australian Writers' Centre? Nat's going to bring us our writing tip for this week. What is our tip, Nat? Hello, Valerie. Um, yes, <laughs> so last week I was, uh, well, we were both talking about and um, yes. and how useful a word it is. Yes. Uh, but now I'm going to kind of go a little bit against that and say that <laughs> and then is uh-huh. not as useful. But I mean this in a particular way. So in this instance, I'm talking about plot. So in okay. plot, um, if you use and then, so your characters do something and then they do something else and then they do something else and then they right. do something else. That's yeah. quite boring. Like it's not things aren't building on top of each other. Yes. So in your plot, you want your actions to each build on top of each other. Like each scene, 
builds on it on the previous scene to build towards you know your turning points or your climax mm-hmm. so i've got um an example sentence okay so yeah. this isn't this isn't a sentence but this is the sentence that's describing the plot if you know what i mean right so you're not actually saying don't use the words and then you're saying um don't employ the technique of and then in a plot yeah, exactly. If if your okay. if your plot boils down to a series of and thens, then it's not really building towards anything. Okay. So so this is a kind of um, a simplified example. So uh, he went to the store, and then he ran into his ex girlfriend, and then they had an argument, and then, okay. So each thing is kind of happening in sequence, but we don't have a sense of how those things are related to each other or how they're building on each other. It's just a list of things that have happened. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you definitely don't want your plot to be a list of things. Each scene needs to be integrated into um, the scene before and the scene after it in some way. They should build on each other. So um, so it would be better if, again, this is a very simplified example, but in that same sentence, mm-hmm. it should, your plot summary should read more like, uh, he ran to, he went to the store where he ran into his ex-girlfriend which led to an argument about avocados, which caused <laughs> blah, 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 et cetera. So that way you can actually see how each event is distinctly linked to each other. Right. Event. So there needs to be some kind of causality or reason to move to the next plot event as opposed to, you know, I went to the shop, I went to JB Hi-Fi, <laughs> I bought an Apple Watch or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, cool. So basically you're saying don't use the plot technique of and then, mm-hmm. um, but you're you're not actually saying don't use the words and then. Of course, you can use and then. Um, yeah. They're very useful, as, as I said last week. <laughs> love, love and, love me a bit of an and. Um, but, yeah, just be careful that when you're plotting that you're not just doing a series of and thens. Brilliant. All right, thank you so much, Nat, for your writing tip this week. Let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of The Disappearance of Astrid Bricard by Natasha Lester to give away. Of course, Natasha Lester is a best-selling author and course creator of our course, Two Hours to Scrivener Power. And you can also meet her on episodes 106 and 186 of our podcast because she's been on before. And this week, I'm giving away three copies of her latest book, The Disappearance of Astrid Bricard, which takes us on a journey through time, fashion and France. Here's the blurb. In November 1973, a fashion legend vanished, leaving behind only a white silk dress and the question, what really happened to Astrid Bricard? Paris, 1917. Parentless 16-year-old Mitza Bricard makes a vow to be remembered on her own terms. This promise drives her and her designs through the most exclusive couture houses in France until finally a legend is created, one that will endure for generations to come, but not the one she wanted. New York, 1970. Designer Astrid Bricard arrives in Bohemian Chelsea ready to change the fashion world, and she does, but cast in the role of muse to her lover Hawk Jones. Just as Astrid's star is finally poised to ascend in its own right, she mysteriously disappears, leaving her family in tatters and perpetuating the infamous Bricard family myth. French countryside present day. 
Blythe Brickard is the daughter of fashion's most infamous 70s power couple, but she turned her back on that world and her passion for it years ago. Fate, however, has other plans, and in a chateau over a whirlwind couple of weeks, Blythe will discover there is more to her iconic mother and grandmother, and herself, than she ever knew. These three generations now have one chance to prove themselves. Can the women of the Bricard fashion dynasty finally rewrite their history? There you go. Well, I have three copies to give away um, of The Disappearance of Astrid Bricard by Natasha Lester. Entries close on the 30th of October. Just go to writercentre.com.au slash win for your chance to enter. Just go there and follow the instructions. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. And if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry, there'll be some other fantastic competition for you to enter. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I hope you are because here it is. Pareidolia. Pareidolia. That's P-A-R-E-I-D-O-L-I-A. Pareidolia. What is pareidolia? So pareidolia is when you see meaning in something where there isn't any. For example, a face in a geographical formation or, you know, uh, in random sounds or images in clouds. There you go. I know that's a fun thing you can do when you're lying in the grass and you're looking at the clouds and you're seeing images in there. Well, there you go. That's pareidolia. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in Freelance Writing Stage 1 is the fastest way to get there. Step-by-step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, plus interview skills, industry expectations, and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writercentre.com.au slash freelance. Today, I'm talking to Hedley Thomas, who is the Australian's National Chief Correspondent, specialising in investigative reporting. But he's probably most known for his work on the podcast, which became a global phenomenon, The Teacher's Pet. In case you've been living on another planet and haven't heard of this story, it is a riveting podcast series about the disappearance and murder of a Sydney Northern Beaches woman, Lynette Dawson. Headley has won a whopping eight Walkley Awards, including two Gold Walkleys, and he's now released his memoir, The Teacher's Pet. Thanks so much for joining us today, Headley. Thank you for asking me. Wow. Oh, my God. The Teacher's Pet, unputdownable. But the question on many people's lips, of course, is the podcast was a a juggernaut. It made headlines around the world. It was so interesting, so incredibly well done, utterly mesmerising. It was the water cooler conversation everywhere. And I did wonder, Headley, when I got the book, what, you know, I'm, I know the story. <laughs> but in fact, this is a memoir of your time. And it's not only about the piecing together of this story. It is this incredible background of what drove you. So, okay, that's my words, but if you were to describe this book to somebody, what would you say? I think it is the culmination of an almost 40-year career as a journalist and all of the life experiences that I've had as a reporter but also the experiences that I've had as as a father and a husband 
and a son because I wanted the book to be not just a deep diving investigation and retelling of what was going on through my investigation of Chris Dawson and uh, a number of other teachers on the Northern Beaches. I also wanted it to be a tribute to a woman who had not been forgotten, but who had been denied justice for years. And I wanted it to be a reflection and a bit of a tribute to investigative journalism and to my colleagues, my own family and my father. And all of these different um, ideas and emotions and pieces of evidence that they were they were all around this story because this story and this case for me is unlike anything other I've tackled. And it had many particular um, quite personal points that I wanted to develop that I didn't talk about during the podcast because they were private. Yes, in true journalistic style, you uh, kept yourself out of the podcast. It was very much an unfolding of the facts. Um, and you didn't talk about what drove you. You didn't talk about your background or it, it, or a lot of the elements of the behind the scenes of how it got put together. So, but the thing is this book, okay, so back in 2001, you thought you were going to write a book about the, about Chris and Lynette Dawson, but then things happened and things, you know, got it, life got in the way, but that was going to be a book about them. When did you decide, and then the Teacher's Pet, the podcast happens, but when did you decide you were going to write this book, the memoir? That didn't happen until at least midway, late 2017, and that decision that I made was in part the product of, I think, um, feeling like I was at a bit of a crossroads myself in in journalism and in my own personal life. I was very sad after the, the death of my, my father, who had been an important mentor and a very keen follower of all of my reporting and, and my journalism. And when he died in March 2017, I went away and I spent time with my wife overseas and my children and I took long service leave and I just wanted to step back from it all for as long as possible and way where I wanted to go. And there was a point where I thought maybe I should just do something else for a while. Maybe journalism has taken a bit of a toll and it didn't seem as important to me in the sadness that I felt after dad died. Uh, I I think I was always seeking approval from my father through a lot of my reporting. And when he was gone, then that no longer existed. But then I started considering a podcast investigation and this case and this one case, which I first delved deeply into in 2001, it just materialised again before me in my eyes and in my imagination. And and it wasn't long before I was burrowing into my email inbox and looking for my old files and I found material. And then I thought, this is the case I want to revisit. And I, I think it's possible that on a subconscious level, I was selecting this case after my father died because I was probably waiting to do it when he was no longer alive. 
I think also what uh, I learned about you that didn't I didn't know about in the original podcast is what happened to your grandmother. Um, and that probably speaks to what you've just referenced with your father. So perhaps if could you share what happened there? Yes. My grandmother, who I never knew because um, she died in 1956, uh, raised my father and his sister um, with, their, with, with their dad in a family house on the northern beaches of Sydney. And one day my grandmother disappeared. My dad's mum, when dad was 16, just uh, vanished. And dad didn't talk about this, um, or he talked very little about it. But I, as a kid, would hear um, stories that my mum raised and we would get snippets of the, the, the circumstances. And they were that the police or somebody found a pile of clothes on the sand on the beach at DY. Um, there were footsteps apparently leading into the water. And the belief was that my grandmother at the age of 35 went into the water and kept swimming and uh, drowned and no remains were ever recovered. And, and um, sadly, she had two siblings who had also died by suicide before her. And that was uh, a very tragic event in my dad's life. And uh, I know from mum's stories, and even dad has acknowledged this, that for many, many years, he looked for his mother's face in shopping centres and crowded places. And this is what people who have lost a loved one who has disappeared do. Uh, and I think it made Lynn's case much more relatable for me as a storyteller. And I, I know that I did things and I took risks and I had a stamina and a commitment to Lynn's case that I haven't ever had with any other story. I put everything on the line and I even uh, compromised, you know, my own marriage because of an obsession to try to solve this case and get to the bottom of it. And my, my, my feeling, my sense is that that was coming from this historical event, this um, unresolved issue bound up in the sadness I still had about um, my father's passing and thinking about his life and his loss and my grandmother's mysterious disappearance. Um, and, um, yeah, it it's funny how you, you, you wonder where do these stories that you really latch onto these cases that drive you to do things that no others do, you know, where do they start? And for me, this is how my investigation and the podcast and my obsession with this case, I think it goes all the way back to 1956 when I wasn't born. So when you were doing the research for the for the story and the podcast, um, as we've said, you didn't bring any of this into um, the reporting or into what you discussed. 
has it now what's it felt like now that you're able to tell uh, tell people about it um publicly has it been cathartic what was it like when you actually wrote it and expressed it mm. you know it's i've had mixed feelings about it because i've always regarded it i've always felt that it's been a deeply private personal matter and i did take some time quite some time and a lot of consultation with um, my immediate family and with my um, father's widow my stepmother to work out how i should proceed and the the position that you know i, I took based on all of their feedback was look you can't hurt dad by raising these issues and if you can do it respectfully and thoughtfully then it's meaningful and it's important and this is a memoir of my journalism this is um in a book that is my effort to try to describe so much of this case and go into so much detail i decided that as a journalist and you know Others may beg to differ, but I decided that um, I would um, be almost fraudulent if I didn't describe, if I didn't document in a sensitive way the catalyst for why I even pursued this and probably why I was so attracted to it back in 2001. I mean, in 2001, when I first engaged in this story, I was a Brisbane-based features writer for the Courier-Mail. This was a Sydney-suspected murder with a Sydney, a very strong Sydney connection through the football team and the residents and so on. There was a Queensland angle because the Dawsons moved to Queensland and taught at Queensland High School, including, coincidentally, one that I had just left in I missed Chris Dawson by weeks when I left it at the end of 1984 to become a newspaper copy boy. And he started there in early 1985. But I think even back in 2001, I must have been intrigued by the similarities. Um, it's the Northern Beaches. It's two doting mothers. Um, they've both got two children. They both disappear. And perhaps again, subconsciously, I was wanting to answer difficult questions that I couldn't even ask my dad. Mm. And so what attracted you to journalism in the first place then? I always loved writing and I could write as a student at school. And I remember my English teacher, Mrs. Daly, um, was very um, supportive and at high school would often read my essays to the rest of the class. So uh, I got good feedback and I was deeply intrigued by newspapers and loved reading the papers when dad and mum would have them laid out on the lounge room carpet. And when uh, I would visit um, the houses of my friends, they would sometimes have different newspapers and I would have my head buried in those as a teenager rather than uh, kicking the football around in the backyard. So there was something going on. I I love answering um, 
difficult questions in print and I love asking difficult questions. I'm endlessly curious. I actually do prefer to be questioning people though. So uh, when I'm being interviewed like this, <laughs> I'm probably a little more defensive, but um, I've been privileged to have had such an amazing career in journalism and to have traveled widely and met incredible people and had experiences that I couldn't have had doing anything else. And I've been paid to do it. So it's been remarkable. I, I mean, it is extraordinary luxury, right, to be paid to spend months and months and months on a particular case, um, a particular story. But at some point, even though you had a successful career as a journalist, you went over to the dark side, which is code for PR, communications, media relations, and uh, so on. Um, (laughs) What prompted that? And Let's face it, when you go over to the dark side, your salary increases massively. Um, uh, So what prompted then you to go, you know what, I really love the other stuff I was doing, the journalism? Yeah, that was 14 years ago. So it was early 2008 that I uh, took that leap. And I was, um, I think, a bit intimidated by what I would do next in journalism. I'd just won a Gold Walkley Award and that was an incredible honour and I felt extraordinarily privileged. But I perhaps foolishly then felt a huge amount of pressure and I suspect that I couldn't actually um, uh, meet the, I don't know, meet the bar that I thought had now been set for myself and I shouldn't have worried about that because, you know, people win a gold walk every year and they don't have to leave journalism because of it. They usually stay. So uh, there was that. There was um, certainly a better package for me to take this role. And I'm glad I did because I met great people who I stayed in touch with and I've had um, some you know excellent experiences in the two years that I was doing it. But uh, it only took two years for me to work out. I wanted to be back in journalism and I didn't care about taking a pretty significant pay cut to return to uh, reporting. So then let's talk about um, you, 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 you got intrigued by the story back in 2001-ish uh, and then in around 2017 you have this conversation with your editor to revisit it and do it as a podcast. Now, you hadn't created a podcast before. You'd always been a print journalist. Um, From what I can gather, you didn't really listen to heaps of them either. So what happened this into your brain? Yeah, I know. it's um, It was pretty risky brave um, or crazy brave or something. I just knew that I wouldn't be able to tell this story in the way it needed to be told in the traditional way in a series of newspaper articles. I couldn't convey the scale of the injustice and the betrayal and just the awfulness of this case in print alone. I wanted to try to emulate what I'd heard already in the handful of podcasts that I you know, had experienced. And 
I also had this idea that when I was doubting my own commitment to journalism at that stage, this might really help me um, overcome that issue. And and also I knew it would, if I got the green light, it would give me a huge amount of autonomy so that I could uh, be working almost independently of the office. They didn't know what I'd be doing. I just knew that I would drive myself as hard as possible, traveling and driving and tracking people down and trying to um, get access to thousands of documents and so on. And um, I think I think that if I had done this any differently, Chris Dawson would still be enjoying his retirement up on the Sunshine Coast, going to the beach every other day, and there would still be uh, a terrible injustice. So it was the right decision, but it was a pretty unlikely outcome when you consider the fact that I was um, a complete rookie on the podcasting front. So what did you have to do in that regard? Because your experience is as a print journalist, but podcasting is completely different medium. What did you have to do in your approach? Because even basic things like make sure the audio is turned on, and you know, you, to capture things, if you don't capture them, it's lost. With print, you can just write it down, right? So what? how did you um, approach it differently in your brain? Barry, I look back and I can't believe how lucky I got because, um, you know, as Slade Gibson, who produced the podcast for me as an audio engineer, and he's an, an amazing musician as well, he he only said yesterday that I'm allergic to technology and um, you need to understand audio levels and um, other technical specs to be able to produce a good podcast. My audio levels were always pretty ropey and I thank Slade for rescuing the situation. I didn't know how to operate the little Zoom H, whatever it is that I had in my hand at the time. Uh, at my first interview using this device, I'd gone out to a country town called Miles and the uh, former schoolgirl of Chris Dawson, who I was interviewing out there, thankfully many years younger than me and a millennial, she took pity on me when she realized that I couldn't operate it. I, it had just come out of the box and and uh, she formatted it or something and it worked. <laughs> um, so I had no idea. But what I did have was you know, at that time, 35 years of experience as a journalist, as a storyteller. And I knew that this story, this case had so much power and information and um just terrible misses and failures by many people to deliver justice to a woman who had never wronged anybody. You know, she was only a good mum and a good wife and a good daughter and a good sister, a very loyal person, uh, a nurse, a member of the caring profession. And, and, you know, she had been, I think, very shabbily treated by the criminal justice system, by the police in the early years, particularly. So when you have the experience as a storyteller, the transition to the new genre, the new medium of podcasting, yes, there were technical issues, but in terms of the, the structure of, of the story, I decided to treat the podcast series like I might treat a book. 
I'd written one book up to that point. It was in 2007. And in my view, a nonfiction book that deals with true crime, you know, should be a page turner. It should have uh, suspense and it should have um, a way to um, um, unwind so that the, the readers are really taken on a journey. It might be your journey. It might be someone else's. But they're given something that is going to be both thrilling and shocking. And I knew that this case had all of that. So if I could just write the podcast episodes, like I might write the chapters of a book, then I felt I could probably pull it off. Well, obviously you succeeded because it was ridiculously rated and and everyone, like you were talking, you were calling your friends after the episode dropped to say, blah, 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 <laughs> you know, to talk about what happened and what unfolded. But when you wrote it, so that makes sense that you wrote it in the way that you would have written a, a really good creative nonfiction book. Mm-hmm. Um, but that means you are looking at the, your, your note-taking and your research through that lens. But now you've written this memoir. What did you have to do? Was it because you had to then rely on your memory, I assume, unless you also took notes for this book? What did you have to do to make sure that the elements of the the actual unfolding of the investigation, the things you actually did, thought, felt, went through, were captured in this book? Well, um, I was really lucky in one way because I had hundreds of hours of audio of interviews that I'd done with Lynn's friends and family and with former school students and with my own friends who had known Dawson at high school on the Gold Coast with so many people. And that audio, only a tiny fraction of it became the material that was the you know, that formed the episodes for the Teacher's Pet series. There's so much else going on in a three or four hour interview with Lynn's sister. Um, just casual asides that are raised when you're sitting down and um, eating banana cake while waiting to go to the next question. Um, there's atmosphere, you know, there's the things that I'd forgotten, like, you know, this incredible thunderstorm that broke over Sydney while I was talking to Lynn's sister Pat and brother Greg. And and then when we were when we were recording with Greg as he drove us into the city in that afternoon. And you observe things as you as you drive along and and then in the conversation that's recorded, those things are being raised. And so when I sat down to write this book, I went back through all of this audio and listened to it again. And it was a really cathartic experience because I had felt a little bit traumatized by all of the legal challenges that flowed from my podcast. Uh, Chris Dawson, of course, was charged with murder as the 16th episode was being produced by Slade and I. And he instructed his lawyers to argue all the way to the High Court of Australia that he should not have to face a murder prosecution, that the whole proceeding should be terminated and cancelled because my podcast had too much information and that any potential jurors who heard it would believe that um, he was definitely guilty. And as a result of all of those proceedings and um, having to spend day after day in the witness box myself and 
um, a, a fortune. Fortunately, wasn't um, my money. The newspaper supported me, but a huge amount of money on lawyers to deal with uh, all of these challenges. And all of that takes a bit of a toll. I spent certainly a lot more time dealing with the lawyers after the podcast than I had spent investigating and writing for the podcast and the book for that matter. So when I went back and listened to all of this audio and all of my notes, and I had folders and folders of material as a result of everything that I had being subpoenaed and seized, not seized, but taken in as evidence by Chris Dawson's legal team and others, that was um, fascinating and compelling and gave me so many more insights into this case, much more than I had developed in the actual podcast. At any point did you think, oh, I can't go through it again. I've 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 written the whole podcast and I, I'm go I'm going back into that world. Valerie, you've hit the nail on the head. I did feel like that at different stages and I was very tired as well. I was hugely relieved after the conviction, but I was exhausted because I was also doing other murder investigations and other very significant podcasts that have had really significant um, uh, consequences. So you talk about um, that you were, it was exhausting and that it took a toll on you, not only to, in terms of exhaustion, but the bandwidth, the stress, the legal issues, um, and that seems to be something that has been part of your work as a journalist. I mean, you write about this incredibly terrifying incident where there were bullets um, shot at your house while you and your you know family were there. How do you deal with that? Do you, with this fear? I, I mean, I'm assuming there's some level of fear in addition to the stress that there's consequences. I was a lot more concerned about it when our children were younger. And when that shooting occurred in October 2002, um, my kids were just babies. Uh, they don't live at home anymore. They're um, 24 and 22. And so I, I feel that they're um, not likely to be hurt in any way if somebody were to come after me. I'm 56, Valerie, and I guess that at this age and stage of my life, you know, I'm a little more um, fatalistic about um, events and, and what might happen. I don't think that there would be further reprisal against me, and I certainly don't um, lie awake at night or um, pull any punches or change my routine. But, um, you know, who knows what may be around the corner. I feel that I'm doing what I like doing, and... I don't um, suffer fear during a podcast, worrying about repercussions. I certainly am aware of some of the psychopathic individuals that I investigate and what they're potentially capable of, but I think that there would also be a blowtorch of investigation and inquiry and scrutiny of those very obvious suspects if something did happen to me. So in some ways I take that as a bit of a protection, a bit of a shield that they would know they would be very quickly um, investigated extremely closely. Uh, I guess 
at the end of the day, you sort of think, well, what else can I do? <laughs> I'm not sure that I've got another option and I don't want to drive Uber. So that's it. <laughs> do you take any, um, does it manifest itself in any way in the sense that I think one of the people in the book, can't remember the, her name, Barbara maybe, who said that she was scared for many years. She was like looking over her shoulder. Um, I, she's not a journalist, obviously, but um, I was talking to James Phelps, a journalist, who said there was a period that he had a baseball bat. He slept with a baseball bat nearby. Do you take, is anything like that that's, that happens with you? No, I don't carry any weapons. I don't even um, uh I probably shouldn't talk too much about my personal security, but I feel I feel that if somebody wants to attack me, if somebody wants to harm me or my property, and they're really determined, there's not really much you can do. There's not really much anybody can do. We are so visible in this day and age, particularly when you spend much of your life in the media and um, social media being what it is and um, the ability of people to track your movements through events that are posted about you and so on. If somebody does really take a determined course of action, then it doesn't matter what precautions you might take. So again, I'm a bit fatalistic about it. <laughs> you write about the fact that, uh, you know, you, you, you were given this fantastic really opportunity by the Australian to spend all this time, uh, paid time researching. And then you kind of, you get to the stage when you've done a lot of research where you kind of go, I kind of need to write the podcast. I need to stop researching. Did the, did your employers, did the Australian give you a time frame at which point like Headley, come on. Yeah. Yeah, they um, gave, well, in fact, I gave them a, a very hopeful deadline for the the start of the podcast series, and it was um, impossible. I couldn't meet it, so I asked for an extension, and they gave that. Uh, they were very understanding, but I think that what I was going through was just classic avoidance. Yeah. I was comfortable when I was going out and running down new leads, tracking down witnesses who hadn't been talked to by the cops before, um, using all sorts of um, property searches and ingenious other searches to discover people, uh, finding documents that I knew hadn't been discovered before. And that for me was exciting and thrilling, but it also meant I was able to justify not actually sitting down at my desk and writing chapter one, episode one of the podcast. Uh, I went through the same thing, Valerie, with the book. Uh, I, I wanted to gather all my files and then do all of these new interviews with people. And I think it's probably probably part of my character in, in creating a story that I don't know when to stop finding material and when to start writing it down. But I think there's also a fear of the writing. You know, some people sit down and write and it just comes so effortless, effortlessly and and they don't um, fret over what they put on the page. They're happy with it and they don't need to uh, redo it five times. I really um, agonise 
until I sit down and start doing it. And uh, I finally started writing the book that is the teacher's pet uh, in um, February, late February this year. And, uh, and so I then faced a very tight deadline because I knew I wanted to have it uh, in bookstores around now. Mm. So did Pan McMillan. Um, but that, <laughs> for a lot of journalists, is the great motivator. When you've got that deadline and you know that you're behind the eight ball, then you really give it your best shot. And I also had the benefit of all of these very thick folders of material, um, hundreds and hundreds of megabytes of audio, uh, all of my text messages and emails that, that were in folders. I had so much documentation. I had my original notebook from 2001 when I had done that first big story looking for Lynn and that I had been able to retrieve from the, the roof of the carport of, of my home. Um, you just said that you've had all you had all this material, but you also said that in writing the book, you were wanting to potentially interview more people. Why in God's name would you need to interview more people? Avoidance, because it was <laughs> it was it meant again that I didn't have to start um, uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm I'm I feel like I'm a good interviewer and I get a lot out of people when I'm when I'm questioning them and I enjoy doing that. I enjoy being on the road and um, making the phone calls and uh, driving around and flying to people's place, all of that. So I love doing all of that stuff. Uh, and when I do have to write, you know, when I've got the deadline, I can do it. But the book was daunting. It's partly because of the scale of this story, Valerie. Like, unlike any other story I had tackled before, I worried that I couldn't do justice to Lynn's story because on so many levels, it felt too epic. It felt um, much more important than I could possibly show that. And I worried that I would come up short, that I wouldn't be able to convey in um, a pod, either the podcast or the book, the seriousness of the treachery and the betrayal and the corruption and the negligence and the failure. You know, there were so many terrible failings over so many years after Lynn was murdered and before she was murdered. And, you know, I felt like, I think, a real burden of responsibility to do proper justice to that. Could I do proper justice to that with the, the product that I needed to write and narrate and then the product I need to write for the book? And, you know, I don't know that I have done proper justice to us to it. I know that the journalism has helped solve the crime, but the story is so extraordinary that you know it would take probably Truman Capote to do proper just justice to it. Oh, Headley, I think you've done proper justice to it. But um, let's come back to both the book and the podcast, in that you talk about its epic nature and. And it is an epic um, story with so many layers. It's also epic because of the level of investigation that you did. But at some point in both cases, do you kind of reach a point where you go, in your gut, I know I've got enough, but I'm just going to keep on, you know, I, I do know I could do it now, you know. Yeah, and I got to that point. And I got to that point shortly after I said to Ingrid Olsen, who 
uh, is the wonderful uh, director of Pan Macmillan. And when she was ringing me in February of this year to ask um, very politely, very respectfully, oh, by the way, how's the uh, the writing going, Headley? You know, this book that she'd been waiting on for um, four and a half years. And uh, and I said, oh, well, um, won't be too far away. I, I'm just rearranging some furniture in my office and then I'll do the shed and then I'm, I'm just going to buy a couple more bits and pieces for my desk and I'll be pretty right to go, I reckon, by, you know, February 22. And <laughs> poor Ingrid, she's incredibly patient, but she would have been rolling her eyes and and uh, reporting back to her team that um, we better not lock anything in on this one. I'm not sure what we're going to get. <laughs> so by the time you sat down, you made yourself put your bum in your chair and actually write. What did that look like then? Because you know, of course, you've got all your research, then you have to construct it and get the words out. Were you making yourself write a certain number of hours or words per day? Like, what did that look like, practically speaking, to actually get the manuscript? Yeah, I um, I didn't rigidly structure my day so that um, I said, okay, I'm starting at 7am, I'm going to write till 2pm and and then have a break and do a bit more. I didn't do it that way. I I wrote when it um, felt like I had something to give and when I had ideas. And that was most days, but it just depended on how I was feeling each day, how far I would go. It got exhausting as well. And at times uh, I felt um, anxious and a bit upset by some of the material that I was revisiting uh, because as a result of all of the, the legal uh, challenges before Chris Dawson was finally convicted, uh, I really, you know, battled with his lawyers and had to defend my journalism and had to defend what we had done with the teacher's pet. You know, I was severely criticised by a Supreme Court judge who believed that I should not have done any investigating for this case because as she said, you knew that the office of the DPP was again considering the case. But my position was, so what? Who who knew what the DPP would do? They had repeatedly over the years reviewed it and said, we're not prosecuting. So why would it be any different 36 years later? But um, I think because of that... Um, Trauma's you know, probably too strong a word, but certainly it was a, a very anxious period when I was battling his lawyers and it felt like I was battling the criminal justice system, which was seriously considering freeing Chris Dawson of the murder charge because of my podcast. So going back into all of that, um, it was probably one of the reasons why I put it off for so long uh, because I knew it was going to be a, a, a bit heavy when I did. It would remind me of how sick I felt through periods in 2019, 2020, 2021, and even um, up until you know the High Court finally in um, 2022, last year, said, no, we're not going to let you terminate this proceeding. You can get a fair trial. Uh, I so that that's another reason, a very significant reason, I think, why I put it off. I also knew, and Ingrid 
um, completely supported and understood this, I had to hand over a huge amount of my material, my workings, all of the interviews that I'd done, notes and so on, so many files. And I had to hand that over to the lawyers for Chris Dawson, the police and the DPP. And that material then went into the courtroom for consideration. And um, it was a it was a very um, um, unusual process for me as a journalist. I had also received many hundreds of emails and and letters and notes from listeners, particularly women who were sharing deeply personal experiences with me as a result of listening to the podcast and trusting me as a storyteller, not wanting me to tell their story, but wanting to share it, something that had happened to them, something very traumatic. And all of this material, the the other sides wanted, and it was completely irrelevant to Chris Dawson's case. We managed to work around that and um, uh, deal with it in a way that we, where the, their privacy was not infringed, and and that that you know there was um, uh, nothing that could have identified these individuals. But all of that again, it it became this, um, um, I guess, um, monkey on my back, and I didn't want to start writing the book earlier than I did, because while there was still a legal proceeding pending against Chris Dawson, there was potential for them to subpoena the manuscript, the unfinished manuscript that I wrote. I also felt that I would have a lot more confidence as the author, a confidence in the way I delivered and wrote the story once I had a result. Of course, I wanted that result to be guilty because that's what I believed he was. I think most people believed that Chris Dawson was guilty of the murder of his wife. But I knew that once that verdict was locked in, then um, it would free up a lot of the blockage in me. It's very difficult when you're a writer, a journalist, to um, try and do the reveal-all book in in a situation where you either don't have the verdict or the verdict has gone the way that is contrary to the the, the investigation that that you've done. Um, that would be quite um, <laughs> very challenging, and I don't know where we would have got to. This has consumed your life professionally and personally for a very long time, particularly in the more recent years. Um, the podcast is out, great success, uh, very popular. There's been a, a trial, a verdict. This book is now out. Have you moved on? Well, I've not moved on from all of the wonderful people I've met through this case. Lynn's family, Lynn's friends, the students that I've met from the Northern Beaches, some of the you know, wonderful um, people who helped achieve justice for Lynn, like Damien Loon and other coppers who have been involved in it, they're friends for life. Uh, And, you know, I am so privileged to have had that opportunity to meet these people and to have worked with them and to have helped deliver this outcome. I don't think, though, that I can do more 
fall in or more investigation of this case. I don't believe it, it is possible. Well, it's always possible, I guess, but I think it's highly unlikely that we would find her remains. Um, I don't know that we'll be able to tie anyone else to her murder. So my focus is on other unsolved murders, and I do those as podcast investigations, and uh, they're really important, and they're always Australian women, and uh, I want to keep doing those, and I, I've got another one that I'm working on now. I've done two major ones since the teacher's pet, one called The Night Driver about Janine Vaughan's disappearance in Bathurst, in New South Wales, and uh, another one involving the murder, the, the, the slaying of Shandy Blackburn, um, a 23-year-old in the Queensland town of Mackay. And uh, those stories and cases are still very important to me, and we'll do more on those, but I've got a, a whole new murder investigation that I'm um, deep into at the moment, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to release a lot of material and episodes about that in coming months. Do you have another book planned? I don't know. I said to my wife, that I think um, this is the second and last book that I'll write because they are grueling. Really? <laughs> <laughs> but Ruth said, no, I don't think so. You'll, of course, you'll write another book, so <laughs> you can't stop. <laughs> but nothing in mind at this point. <laughs> No, no, nothing um, planned, but who knows? You'd never rule it out. Hmm. Well, as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm in Bayview and um, uh, Chris and Lynette Dawson's house is, is up the road and I think that, that it's, it's uh, I think that many people have to say thank you, Hedley, for shining such an important light on um people like Lynette, but obviously specifically Lynette and her family. Um, uh, the podcast, as we've already said, was fantastic. This is different. This book is a memoir and um, it's a fascinating account on, on, on your journey. So thank you so much for your time today, Hedley. Valerie, thank you. And thank you for so many thoughtful and perceptive questions. I've really enjoyed the interview. Um, and um, I'd love to talk back to you anytime that you like. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Hedley. To be honest, I can't imagine dedicating so much of my life to a story like this, but it is because of the dedication of journalists like Hedley and, and importantly, the backing of his editors and a newspaper who champions and, even more importantly, funds investigative journalism that these kinds of stories can be told and, and that have such an impact on lives and, and justice and the way cases are handled. We're now at the end of this week's episode. If you would like to connect with the listener community on social media and with me, uh, please do join our Facebook group. It's free to join. Search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. I'd love to see you in there. Uh, and also feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram, although I'm not doing that much on Twitter these days, but I'm definitely on Instagram. And I have my own personal newsletter where I talk about art and creativity over at ValerieKoo.com. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. 
You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.